Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Hi there, and welcome once again to the Arrow Man in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor, but if you made it this far, you probably already knew that. Now, back in the spring, I was writing about Abu Dhabi, and I was writing about Qatar and sports washing, and all the other things that make covering these modern sports events such a joy. And uh, after one such rant, David O'Leary got in touch with me on tw- on Twitter, and he offered to tell me his story of living for four years in Qatar. Now, uh, we've been over and back a few times trying to set this up, and finally I've managed to get a hold of him, and the two us win the one place this evening. David, how are you this evening? Very well, thanks very much, Philip. Good to speak to you and uh, glad that we could finally make the time to uh, speak to each other. As you say, I've been playing tennis uh, with the messages for the last few months, haven't we? So... Yeah, I'm delighted, we, I'm delighted we finally got around to it. It's a good time of the year now as well, because, you know, the soccer season as such, as we're speaking, is kind of over. We know who's getting relegated in England. We know who won the league and that, you know. But could you just tell me to start with, David, how you came to be working in Qatar for four years? Yeah, no problem at all. So I was... Um... I travelled to Dubai and, um, uh, well, mainly Dubai, really, through work. Um, I'm in construction, so had an architect friend out there who I did a little bit of work for and um, got a bit of a bug for it, really, just with the scale of the buildings and, and what was going on over there. So this would have been about 2008, 2009. So decided I'd try my best to, to perhaps pursue that um, as an avenue for, for work. And, um, yeah, basically few interviews later and lo and behold it, it finally came to fruition in 2015 but um, it was a long time um, to actually pack things up and move over there so yeah 2015 we finally moved over yeah and it's kind of you know that was at the the or part of the height of it right so they'd already been awarded uh, the world cup to that part of the world grand prix were starting to be held there golf tournaments big boxing matches the ufc you know and i'm talking about the region in general not just qatar now they were investing in sport in paris saint germain and city and that kind of thing what was it like on the ground there what was the feeling like in qatar uh, about all these investments that they were making they're, they're big spectators of football, but they're not big avid goers. You'll probably see that if you ever watch any of the Qatar Stars League. The crowds are very small, but they're, they're well-supported, literally armchair fans. And you've also got to remember that the, the temperatures over there, the majority of the year, it's not very favourable for a fan. However, the stadiums are very well cooled. There's a lot of air conditioning on the pitches and stuff. If you ever go to see Al Sad or any one of the big teams, um, they're completely air conditioned. So they are now built for the um, they are now built for the fan. But the, um, they're big into the Manchester City followings now starting to build over there. A lot of people travelled from Qatar to Abu Dhabi for the, uh, for the Grand Prix, as you say. And, and now the, um, the boxings over there as well. I see um, potentially Joshua and Fury will be in, uh, will be in um, Saudi Arabia, which will be quite interesting as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge thing. But if we sort of zoom out a little bit from that, David, because you went over there. It's a big, big difference. Where are you from in England? I'm from Newmarket in Suffolk, so I'm surrounded by horses. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, you know, there's probably plenty of horses in Qatar. There's plenty of horse owners in Qatar as well, you know. There but, is um, indeed, yeah. yeah what, what was it like, though, for you to move uh, from Surrey over to Qatar? Because like you say, the temperature is a huge difference. What was the way of life like over there for you and your family? 
Honestly, we we didn't really notice, a, I'd say, a huge deal of difference. It, it was pretty much a leap of faith and something now, literally just turned 41. I don't think I'd be able to do it now because I think it'd be one of them things mid-30s. It was, a, it was a great idea and we took the leap of faith. Everything worked out well for us, which was great. Um, my wife enjoyed over there, had fantastic friends. My son had a fantastic school over there as well, but a very Western way of life. A lot of Western restaurants. We, we met a lot of Western European people. You know, there was a lot of um, people from all around the world in a similar situation to us. Very transient place. People come and go. Um, people don't tend to stay there for, for 10, 15 years. There are some longer expats who've been there for quite a while. But life is, for us was pretty much as it was. Um, so me, my wife, my son and the, uh, the Chihuahua packed up and, and headed off over there and, and had four great years, really. Yeah. Um, where did you live? Because, I mean, you know, it's... It's a little bit different depending on where you go in the Emirates. Obviously, many of the so the expats or the foreigners would live in in similar places. But then there are sort of there's tears to expats there as well. There's tears to the foreign labour that's there. People like yourself working in construction, coming from Western countries, will be in one tier. But there are also people who are coming from um, from Asia, from parts of Asia, who are working there. I met. I mean, I think I, I was saying when I was in Abu Dhabi, I almost barely met anybody of you know who spoke Arabic at all. So what was it like for you where you lived there? Yeah, similar. We we lived on uh, we lived on the Pearl Qatar, which is the the, the man made island, their version of the palm, which is in Dubai. Really, that is predominantly expats. Um, it's almost like living on a uh, like, I wouldn't say like a holiday resort, but everyone who lives there has a great standard of life. But everyone is literally there just working, so you never really get the um, time to appreciate it. You're surrounded by private beaches and nice restaurants and. A lot of the local Qataris have um, have places there and, and drive at insane speeds up and down the, the road in and out there in Ferraris and Lamborghinis and the such. So it was it was very nice, you know, very lavish. And um, we were fortunate that the company who I worked for, our chairman actually owned several of the towers on the Pearl. Um, so that that worked out really well for us. It was a natural thing for us to, to, to live and stay there. It was great. I was talking to a friend of mine recently. Uh, he was over there. Now, he only worked there very briefly. So this guy is... Uh, basically, his job is to captain yachts and to sort of pilot them all over the world. And he briefly got a job there, but because of the pandemic and that, then the job was lost. So he moved from Sw Sweden to the Middle East and then back again, right? But he was saying that, you know, he moved from a house, you know, sort of a standard house in Sweden to something that was like, you know, 500 square meters in, in Qatar. Is the standard of life, uh, sorry, the standard of living that much different from what you would have had back in the UK? Oh, massively. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we literally, um, you know, I'm happy to share some of the photos I used to take off my balcony. We were living on a private Island surrounded by yachts. And, um, you know, if you needed anything, there was a hotline for a Mercedes to come and pick you up to drive you, you know, to the next tower, rather than you having to walk five minutes over a bridge. It was, there was always something and someone to do something for you. It was, it was an incredibly different standard of life, but that was me fortunate at, at this level I was at in construction as, as a sort of Western expat. I was, I was fortunate enough to have that, that lifestyle there. Hmm. One of the things we hear a lot about, David, um, I think The Guardian came up with that story of six and a half thousand people who've died working in construction projects related to the World Cup. If you look at the construction industry there, and again, without getting into too much detail too quickly, um, what is the health and safety aspect of it li like? Is there, you know, we get the impression in the West, certainly, that there's a very cavalier uh, attitude taken towards the migrant labourers who come in from Asia there. Would, would that have been your experience when you were there? Well, firstly, I think that the number was what stuck out to me, or stuck out to me rather, initially, living and, and working there, I'd never known or was aware of numbers like that. And bearing in mind, I wasn't actually on stadia projects, I was associated with a few of the infrastructure projects, but nothing on the stadia. But the numbers were staggering. And I just, it, it didn't, not to get 
brainwashed by the propaganda it, it didn't really stack up for me I would have thought if that level was going on then the, the lads I was working with you know Indian Pakistani Bangladeshi a lot of migrant workers there'd be there'd be stories and things coming back but there was none of that and and I, I found that quite odd um, and I know um, I don't dispute that the figures there they're obviously validated by um, reputable uh, firms so I, I don't dispute that at all but in terms of cavalier attitude I did hint, I did sort of make noises about it before. A lot of it's, a lot of it we found was behavioural. The company I worked for was, was a British-based company and health and safety was taken very seriously. And as, as was I as a project manager, you know, it, it came back down on us. If anything were to go wrong, you'd be liable and you'd potentially be the person who had to answer in the court. And, you know, no one really wanted that. A lot of it was behavioural. What we tend to find that they came from a culture where safety wasn't in their background whereas ours over here clearly is it was um it, it was it was difficult to drill home what we would deem common sense that's what i would say and, and i think a lot of people don't quite understand that you see the headline it's obviously quite it is shocking there's no it's not quite shocking it is shocking a single life lost is one life too many but a lot of the behavior we saw on the sites from the migrant workers and their approach was just it it, it was not common sense um, I have to hold up my hand and say that I probably would have been one of those guys. Like I was never the hard hat guy on the building site. And still to this day, I think, you know, some people are saying the editors that I've worked for knew some of the things I'd done. I'd probably get a rap of the knuckles for it. But it, the hard thing, I suppose, is, David, you spoke about infrastructure projects there because the stadium is, is just one aspect of the World Cup, right? I, I still remember the first time I was on a road that was built for the Olympics and it was the finest stretch of tarmac I've ever been in a car across. You know, it was just amazing. What kind of things were they building there for the World Cup that maybe may not have uh, been built otherwise there's a lot of um, a lot of training facilities there were seven um, training facilities going up for the various teams that that, that will travel and stay there um, the airport was being redeveloped to, to obviously take the, the the large influx of people I think they'll get a million people through the door um, over the course of the the World Cup in uh, next November so there was there was that obviously the road infrastructure the roads were were literally flying up um, you know one Irishman to another one we know how to build a road but over there it was it was it was serious that there's five six lane motorways that were going up behind screens that you'd be thinking would be taking months and months and then the screens come down and the roads are there it was it the rate of growth was phenomenal absolutely phenomenal and i mean i'm assuming that it is the world cup is the sort of the you know you were saying the screen this is the reason they said okay we're gonna have the world cup so we have to have all these things um what's it like in terms of resources did you ever say right i'm on a building project here i need concrete i need timber i need plasma i need whatever i need and they said no or is everything just available there is you know is that how they're investing they're heavily reliant on trade routes through Saudi Arabia and from um, from Dubai and the UAE. Uh, Jebel Ali is the main uh, port in, in Dubai, which brings which brings thing up up through into into Qatar. So in June 2017, when what's commonly known as the embargo struck, when Qatar was ostracized by Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Bahrain, uh, the UAE, etc., it made things very, very difficult to get materials. All the routes essentially closed. Anything that came in had to be screened. And then as relations deteriorated further, anything that came in that was for a construction project was screened even further to make sure it hadn't actually passed through any of these other countries. And if it had, it was turned away. So it was difficult. However, the construction world over there is very, I won't say it's, uh, the world I'm in is mechanical and electrical services. Mm. It's exactly the same as it is here. It's all British standards good high quality installations with a lot of people looking over for safety reasons, you know, electrical installations, very highly specified. 
we never struggled for materials. What we did struggle for was time. So if, if you needed things that were from, um, for example, we had fans, the same fans we use on a job I'm on in Cambridge at the moment are the same fans we were installing in a substation over there. They're made in Wales. Um, for us to get them here, they're two to three weeks. For us to get them over there, 16 to 18 weeks. So we knew what we had to do from day one. You procure it up front and it arrives when it arrives. Um, in terms of the workmanship, right, because um, I remember one of the places I've been a lot now uh, for big tournaments like World Cups and the Olympics is I've been to Sochi in Russia several times uh, for sporting events. And that was another similar situation because they have the Grand Prix there in Sochi. They built the racetrack. Uh, they've held World Cup games there. They had the Winter Olympics there. Now, I wouldn't have thought too much, again, one Irishman to another, um, the standard of workmanship there. And again, they were working to the last minute, right? So when I arrived um, to, to do the, the Winter Olympics, there they were still painting in the hallways of the hotel when i know i arrived a day or two early and even the very first event i remember there's a british slow water taking part in the slope style event and they were still putting up the crash barriers at the bottom where he was supposed to finish up as he was going down the hill and um, what was that like then in qatar because you know time management is a very key part of the construction process yeah i mean stadium wise they'll be they'll be miles ahead they'll be so far ahead they were finishing them off there, there were certain stadia that were finished and extensions that were happening um to existing stadia when when we were first joining there so they, they'll be there definitely in terms of time roads and infrastructure the metro they'll be all over that as well the metro's now open um hotels there's a lot of hotels that are already there a lot of them are quite you know, low occupancy because it can be quite a transient place. It's a fairly quiet place. It's not massive. Yeah. Um, they will definitely be ready for it. And I think they'll, the eyes of the world will, will be open when they go there to see what a great job they do of it. I think that they'll really, they take real personal pride in it. The motto there is Qatar deserves the best. Yeah. And um, in terms of workmanship, mechanical, electrical stuff, the, there's a lot of various levels of internal management and people looking through QA, QC procedures, which is far more stringent than anything I was used to hear, even working in pharmaceutical industry and things over in the UK. The level of checks and balances over there far exceeded it. And um, construction-wise, I mean, in terms of build, <clears throat> there was a lot of times you looked at a building, you thought it doesn't quite look the finished article is in it, the quality is not quite there, you know, maybe of, of the cladding or something like that, but the services and the, you know, the life safety systems were second to none. Definitely. I couldn't argue with that. And um, one of the things that, you know, in this whole sort of maelstrom, when you're discussing sports washing and diplomacy and all these things, one of the things that comes up regularly is the idea that if we have, and I've had this conversation with the Swedish manager, Janne Andersson, I have it regularly with him. He's gone, okay, it's better to be there and talk to people because that way you can have an influence. Is, you know, the criticism of Qatar actually having an influence locally or are they just going, oh, we're putting on a World Cup, so you're all going to like us in the end anyway? I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, in turn, there's a lot of propaganda and from other surrounding countries. And when the embargo struck, there was definite, um, there was all sorts going on. You went on Twitter, you could Google, or sorry, you could search the word Qatar and you'd see the same tweet anti-Qatar about 50 times from various bots. So there is a lot going on out there. I think they're aware of the criticism. Um, they're very proud as a nation and proud as a country of what they're doing. There's no question about that. But they are just building it with the with the focus. The Supreme Committee, who are who are awarded the World Cup essentially to deliver it for the country, they are doing the World Cup, and the World Cup is happening there, and that's the end of it. Mm. Um, 
one of the things that I noticed in Abu Dhabi was again you're you're not dealing with democracies here, David, right? So these are places where you know the, uh, homosexuality is illegal. You know, even you know uh, displays of intimacy, should we call them, on the street is illegal. Uh, it's people can't drink. You can only drink alcohol in hotels. You can't be drunk in public. Um, you can't commit adultery, certainly in the Emirates anyway, and I'd imagine it's probably similar in Qatar. Yeah. Um, did you find these things sort of impinging on your daily life when you were living in Qatar? Never had an issue with it. And that's and that's someone who, you know, by all admits, uh, enjoys a, a good social life, uh, good hotels, good bars within, within they're mainly within hotels. You had to have your ID with you at all times. I didn't actually mind it. I actually felt it was a good thing. You know, if you, if you were stopped on the street and you had your Qatari ID, you'd have to show it and it would be checked and you'd be fine. I was never stopped. We never had any issues as a family going out or doing anything. We led a very Western life out there with no, with no issues really. We had, we had, we had a license to buy alcohol from the, um, from a, from a store that that was the selling place there as well as you could buy pork, but there was never any, any issue or, or never any negativity towards that at all. I'm just wondering if the same is going to be true for England fans when they inevitably qualify for this World Cup. I remember being at the, the Euros in 2016 and people were talking about, you know, the English fans, oh, they're rioting. They're not rioting. They're just doing what they always do. They're drinking on the street and they're shouting and they're singing. And, and you know, <clears throat> the French police were probably the most underprepared. Ever. I actually remember arriving at the scene in Lille and going, this is what they always do. Um, <clears throat> a, do you think they'll go to Qatar for the World Cup? And B, how do you think they'll be received when they do get there? I think they they will go. I think everyone will probably go. And I think a lot of people will be very surprised um, with the country and, and the hospitality and, and how hospitable the locals will be towards them. There is that drinking culture that goes along with football. And I think, and I don't know this for definite, but it felt like they were making provision for large um, parks and open spaces which felt like they were going to be eventually fan parks. I mean, it's, it's a year or so or two years since we've been there. I think they will have areas of the of the country in public that, that will be almost segregated. They'll be that big. You wouldn't be able to see them from the street, etc. Mm. We went to the Gulf a few times there and the, the uh, MotoGP as well. And that, that there was alcohol at both of those events within tents and stuff. And I know it's different when you live there because you, you're just accustomed to the way of life. But I think what you'll find is you become very quickly, right, we want to go and have a few beers. That's where we go and have the few beers. Let's go and have a few beers there. But on your way back out, you won't be able to take alcohol and be running around the streets wild. Um, they won't be tolerating anything like that. But I think the fans will go and they'll, they'll have a great time. They really will have a great time and, and it will open the eyes of the world. There's no question. Um, again, the whole thing is sort of public drunkenness. Would you, you know, if you went out for a few beers and somebody had one too many, can you just put them in a taxi and they'll, they'll get home? Okay, you won't exactly go, and, that. you know, you know, rambling down the street looking for a chip shop. No, you know? exactly that. You'd, you'd literally, you'd, you'd order an Uber, you come out of, a, out of a hotel, jump in your Uber, and then five minutes later you'll be at your hotel. It's, it's not, it's not. There's not people out there looking for you, waiting for to catch you on the corner of a street corner. There's nothing like that going on. Um, you obviously were employed over there for four years you had a very good employer you had a nice place to live but you were kind of at the mercy of your employer in, in certainly in the UAE now I mean, I've never been to Qatar so I can't speak about that right but basically your visa is you know with your employer were you in the same situation there that if, if and when you decided to leave that was it you, you know your employer says okay you're finished now you gotta go yeah, I mean, that was my choice. When I first came there, for us to leave and for us to um, to travel back to the UK or anywhere, we needed an exit permit, which was which was a strange scenario. It was never denied, and I never knew anyone who had it denied, as in 
if you wanted to leave as in for a, for a holiday or vacation, as they would call it, you go and see your HR manager say, I need an exit permit for these dates. You get an exit permit, you go to the airport and you, and you travel. They've now scrapped that. That was the kafala system that they, they basically looked after you and, and I wouldn't say owned you, that's a terrible term, but if you needed to leave, you were at their mercy. They've scrapped that now. You're free to come and go as you please. It was a strange um, concept to start with. However, after doing it for the first time, realizing it's a matter of getting a piece of paper, you're fine. I'm led to believe, not that I ever experienced it first time, but there are other employers who aren't quite so lenient. And there's, there's talk of people having passports held and things like this, which thankfully the Qatari government outruled straight away. Very recent. Well, when I was there, it was outruled. So that became illegal. Um, but in terms of us and our family, no issues at all with things like that. I remember talking to a professional footballer who shall remain nameless because he haven't he hasn't given me his permission to tell this story. But he was playing in a country in the Middle East, and uh, I remember asking him one time, "What did you learn from your time there?" Thinking that you know he would tell me about you know some player who used to play for Barcelona or something like that. He said, "Well, the one lesson I learned was never give them your passport <laughs> because <laughs> right. at the end, you know, all these contracts for big money, you know, at the end when they finish up, you know, there's always a certain amount of money owed, and the passport is held onto it. It becomes a sort of a bargaining chip. So he had." A, a slightly more negative experience than what you would have had David. Yeah. but no, no, when when it was time to leave it was time to leave i was you know I, I was a good leaver so to speak i had some personal issues back here um regarding my family so it was time to come back spoke to my manager there explained what the plan was and, and sort of departed over the course of you know two three months we, we moved out of the accommodation into a hotel we were fortunate enough to be able to stay in a hotel for the best part of six weeks whilst my son was still at school They'd organised our flights back, and and we were we were home, and you know back in back in rainy Newmarket. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me that uh, you were operating at a level in construction where you were very very well looked after, you know. And but I would imagine that people sort of further down the food chain from where you were maybe weren't uh, looked after as well. So could I ask you about the the people that you worked with from Pakistan, from Bangladesh, uh, from India who were working there? What were the conditions like for them? Because this is another one of those things that comes up when we when we discuss this issue. It is, yeah, and and uh, again, straight off the bat, there's there's a you know people say oh, that they're getting paid like two hundred pounds a month, you know that there are salaries like that going on out there. However, what people fail to see is that these guys are um, they're fed, they're watered, they're housed, they have all their clothes cleaned for them, they have flights back home in the UK uh, to uh, to India, Pakistan, wherever they have their own on-site medical facilities, they have um, cricket pitches, they have all these other bits and pieces which people very rarely talk about. All they say is, "Well, only earn two hundred pounds a month." All that money generally gets sent back home to the families, and they stay and live on essentially the food that our company was providing for them. There, they don't they don't tend to to do anything other than work, send the money home, and live off what the company provides them. Now, the accommodation and things wouldn't be to yours and my liking. No doubt there's, there's two or three per room, potentially. If you work under um, World Cup constraints under the Supreme Committee, the regulations are a bit more stringent. There, there's certain other um, boxes have to be ticked. But our guys, and bearing in mind, it was a labour force at one stage of potentially nearly 5,000 people over various labour camps. We had various investigations um, from um price waterhouse cooper places like that who came over independently asking the guys about their welfare and whether they were well looked after and we were lucky the company i worked for were quite moral um in that regard again you hear stories of people places where people weren't getting paid and working uh, living conditions weren't quite so fortunate but i've luckily never experienced it firsthand so i was lucky 
Um, when it comes to the media and that kind of thing, you know, I mean, I remember, I remember being reasonably critical of Abu Dhabi because, you know, whereas I was received very well, much like yourself, and I was very well looked after and they were extremely hospitable people. I've never come across anything, uh, people quite so hospitable anywhere else, you know, and yet at the same time, I know that everybody didn't have the same experience as I did. So, you know, when it comes to the media, when it comes to, to speaking freely there, did you ever feel that, you know, and it could be two things. One thing is, you know, to speak in public, but also because, you know, you don't want to offend people either, you know, because they, they're doing things the way that they have done them for, for quite a long time. How did you sort of negotiate that particular terrain? I think you're, you're aware of it, but again, never having seen anyone have any repercussions, never put anything out on Twitter about where I was and plenty of tweets in Qatar. I mean, you've got to remember, you know, not saying Twitter was a showcase to show off, but there's a lot of nice things there, a lot of nice places to eat and drink and nice cars and things like that. People saw that side of things, but I never felt suppressed as in you couldn't say anything. <clears throat> Within the media, there's very little um, UK, uh, well, there's very little English speaking press. over there. There was only one UK radio station, um, there was a couple of uh, newspapers which basically just dealt with local affairs. They don't generally, you know, mega with with internal politics. They just look at, look after themselves. Yeah. I never felt suppressed in any way, shape, or form. Um, you're definitely aware of it, though. That, that, that's what I would say. You're definitely aware that there's there is it's a far more conservative place than in the UK, where you might go on Twitter and say, "Well, you know, I'm not happy about this. I hate this. Or I hate that person." I don't think you'd be so quick to do that over there. Um, yeah. I don't know what the repercussions would be, but you would just be conscious that that wouldn't be something you'd be doing. Yeah, I think I, I remember being in uh, when I was in uh, Abu Dhabi and they were saying that, you know, actually insulting people. There's a law against insulting people on social media, you know, yeah. which um, given what I've seen in Irish and British politics, it may be no bad thing <laughs> when it comes down to it. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, um, when your wife was over there with you, did she have any problems with with dress or, you know, this modesty code or any of that kind of thing? No, not at all. And she worked in a school. It was a British school, but there was a lot of um, a lot of Qatari kids, a lot of local kids within there. And the... Um, you know, call it snobbery or whatever it was, a lot of the locals seem to gravitate towards a little bit more, you know, an, an English face. They're very interested in England and London and places like that. But we never had any issues or any remarks or anything like that about what she was wearing or what, her, you know, how when we were out together or anything like that. We never, we never encountered any issues. We did hear stories of people saying years before when the Westerner was, you know, like the, the real foreigner over there, there was a lot of um, that the local women didn't take kindly to them. They didn't like the way they looked and showing their hair and things like this, but not at all. They're, they're very, they're fast moving. It's a fast moving nation. The younger people are very Westernized. They've, they've obviously got their, their, their Muslim heritage at heart and they're, they're very devout Muslims, but we never had an issue as, as a family. We never had an issue. Not my son, not my wife, not me. And, you know, great memories of the place. Really great memories. It's interesting what you say there, because uh, you mentioned this of the, the younger people now. And I suppose that's where all progress tends to come from, because mm. it doesn't really feel like, you know, they're not exactly throwing off the yoke of previous generations, as maybe we would have done with Victorian England or, or in Devil Eras Ireland, for instance. But it does seem that, you know, in some way they're making their way towards progress in their own way. So they're not willing to abandon their religion just yet, because so much of, of the culture is sort of built upon that. But when you speak to younger Qataris, is there a huge difference between them and young Londoners or young people in Surrey or young people in Newcastle, do you think? I think so, yeah. There's, um, you know, careful we say it, there's, a, there's far more respect for the country and for their elders. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot more awareness of where they've come from and, and what their families have done. And the, the family name's huge as well. Mm. They are all, you know, the, the call to prayer is weird. When you first go over there and you hear the call to prayer and you've been in the Middle East, so you've probably experienced it. Yeah. But, 
you hear it to start with and they all rush off for, for prayer times. And, and when you come home, it's something you miss. You know, you actually miss hearing it. But the um, the younger ones, are def- they, they travel a lot more. They spend a lot of time in the UK, a lot of time in Germany, a lot of time in France. They, they, they've traveled a lot more. They're very westernized. They're lucky to have, I won't say limitless money, but a, a far more widely available um, cash flow, should we put, than, than a lot of other people are. Um, but yeah, I would say they're different to you know a UK youngster or teenager or something, because I think they, they don't lose that element of respect that the parents have brought them up with. They're um, they're quite well grounded. They could be wild, certainly on the road. They could be they could be terrible. They're great in a straight line, but the minute there's a bend on a road, they they, they can't maneuver it. So, um, but yeah, there's there's huge respect for the family and for the country specifically for the for the Emir um, Sheikh Tamim bin Hamid Al Thani. There's huge respect for him um, and the Al Thani family. So they're they're very respectful of where they've come from, where they're headed, and and that's that again. That will be probably quite evident, I think, in the run up to the World Cup. One of the things I've noticed, David, is that, you know, certain times when you discuss, especially with people from the Middle East about democracy, you know, uh, we tend to, you know, it's a default for us. We go, okay, democracy is the greatest thing in the world, obviously, despite all its attendant problems. And when I speak to people from the Middle East, you know, and remembering in particular a conversation I had with a young Kurdish man, because the Kurds would be seen as being very progressive. And he was going, I don't know about that, that democracy crack, you know, we got on an awful lot better when the clan sorted everything out between themselves, you know. Is that something that, that surprised you, maybe? Because I'm sure you've heard that that argument made to you in a social situation there that you know maybe democracy isn't the be all and end all yeah i have i have a, a very good friend a very good emirati friend who lives in abu dhabi and um i, I sort of questioned him on it i said you know you not think you know to, to ask that question and he's like well no you know we trust the people who are in charge you know the, the sheikhs the emirs those sort of people to make the right decisions for us and you know if ain't broke, don't fix it. Things are pretty good for them. Do you know what I mean? So they're not sitting there in poverty or thinking we're about to go to war. There's a lot of trust and a lot of um, a lot of respect that those decisions get taken away from. And like you say, it, you know, democracy is great because it's what this this part of the world is brought up on. You know, we, we love the fact we have freedom of speech and everything. Whereas over there, there's perhaps they're not that bothered. You know, people are making the right decisions for them. The sun's shining. They've all got money. There's oil pouring out of every orifice. They're, they're not. They're just not bothered. They don't. They don't see the need to mega in those sort of affairs, really. You mentioned the the boycott there that Qatar wound up in trouble, and I meant to ask you to just explain just a little bit what happened there because we tend to look at the Middle East as this block. You know, this, it still annoys the shit out of all the Iranian people I know that everybody thinks they speak Arabic when they don't. You know, so could you just explain what that situation was and how they ended up falling out with everybody? Yeah, it was interesting. We, I remember driving to work and I think I'm pretty sure I can remember the day. I think it was the 4th of June 2017. And that's if I've got that wrong then I've got it wrong. But I think that's right. I was driving to work and I had the UK radio station on and it said, um, you know, we've got breaking news. It sounds like um, Saudi Arabia have closed the airspace over, over Qatar. As in, sorry, they've closed their airspace to, to Qatari flights. So as the day transpired, had a look on Qatar News or Qatar Living, the, the websites, and next thing, Egypt joined in, then the UAE, then Bahrain, and, and all of a sudden, um, we found ourselves a little peninsula of Saudi Arabia and largely landlocked, as in we couldn't really fly in or out. There was only one real flight route in and out, and that was via Iran and Iraq and sort of towards the, the east. Um, then a list of demands were made, uh, 12 or 14 demands were made, essentially alleging Qatar to be supporting various groups and to be involving themselves in other people's affairs and um, spying on people and doing all sorts of bits and pieces and which they flatly denied Um, and then lo and behold there was a big standoff for three or four years every time the GCC got together there was talk that it would be resolved and it didn't get resolved 
And then I think probably two, three months ago, um, a message came out, and I, I do still follow the, the media now on Twitter, saying we think that the um, the border is going to open up to Saudi Arabia in the next couple of hours. And then within hours, it was done and over. <laughs> and that was it. They're all friends again. And no no concessions were made as far as we we're aware. And it was business as usual again. It really is an amazing part of the world for that sort of, you know, the diplomacy, you know, behind closed doors. All of a sudden, everything's sorted out. And now this is the way, you know. Was yeah, that exactly. to, Did that have anything to do with the situation in Yemen at all? Again, I don't know. That was sort of there was there was they were all. I mean, the situation in Yemen's dreadful, and that was that was fairly well covered. But I don't know. I, I don't know. Again, we, because we were there, we didn't really get involved in the politics of it. We almost you, you almost became one of them because you weren't. There was there was a fair. You could feel the place tightened up security wise. There was a lot more searches and there was um, metal detectors and things went up in hotel foyers and things, which were never there. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was just mm. one of them places that that sort of thing would never be there. You never know what they were looking for, but you had your suspicions. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, we didn't get involved in the policy. We never really read much about it. It just seemed to happen overnight. Then there was a complete stalemate for three or four years. So yeah, three or four, well, longer, probably five years. And then, um, and then all of a sudden in the last few months, it just opened back up again. And yeah, we're all friends again and off we go. And that was it. You mentioned you moved home for personal reasons. I'm not going to ask you what those reasons were, but I would ask you that if things changed, do you think you could ever see yourself going back to Qatar or to the Middle East? You know, honestly, and it's the family side of things here. My wife would go now if you if you come off this call and said there's there's two tickets for Heathrow Terminal Three <laughs> QR Three. I think I can hear the car starting already. <laughs> um, I'd never say never. And and I would, and as I say, I didn't leave for any other reasons other than sort of family issues this end I had to come back for and sort things out. And, you know, I've got a great job here as, as I had out there. I would definitely consider it. There's no question about it. And and in terms of a, a place, I, we're, we're actually trying to get back out there back end of the year as for a visit for a family holiday. Mm. There's so much to do. It's an incredibly safe place, very child friendly Um it's a it's a great country, you know. It's a great part of the world, and a lot of misconceptions from from people who haven't really been there and only read what they read in the press. So, yeah, I I, I think I could probably see myself out there in the, in the not too distant future. Um, the the old Celtic skin didn't take too kindly to the sun. It's it's probably aged me about twenty years, but <laughs> um, but yeah, it is it is great, and we we would definitely consider going back out there. Yeah. Did your son enjoy himself when he was over there? Like massively, massively. Yeah, I mean, he, private education three swimming pools in a tower we lived in, you know, like it just, it was a bit of a dream lifestyle for him. And um, I remember I'll have to be careful with names here. They came back to England uh, on a holiday and they flew to Portugal with a, with a low budget airline. And um, he wondered where his TV screen was and where his three course meal was on the flight. There you go. Spoiled rotten altogether. That's... It was. It well, was, he yeah. enjoyed himself there. How, do, how does he like being back in Newmarket in Surrey now? Good. Uh, Suffolk, Newmarket, Suffolk. So, Suffolk he, he, yeah. Yeah. No, he likes it. It's good. And, different things you, it's weird you get a, a real appreciation for open air and cl you know clean air open spaces over there there's that orange tinge all the time and you get a yeah. drop of rain and then your car's covered in sand and it's you get a very different um different life experience over there but for him it's fantastic he's got some really good life skills that he can um he can break down groups if there's a group of kids playing because he's used to meeting new friends all the time he could just go over and start talking to them and start playing with them and i hope that never leaves him yeah. because of the because of the way of life over there there was all sorts of little groups of kids that when you went to the park you try and break the group so we could go and play and things like that so mm -hmm. great lifestyle and and you know I, I hope to keep the memories fresh with him which is why i'd like to go back so he can sort of still remember it and remember his time at the school there he had a great school some good friends good education 
yeah, it was, we had a great time, really good time. Um, the World Cup has been pushed forward there to December. Um, what's the weather like? What are the conditions like in December? Is it going to make any difference? It it will and it well, I say it will and it won't. December can be bad, as in the the final will be on National Day, which I think is either the twenty first or nineteenth of December, and I yeah, think the tournament starts yeah. at, at the end of November. It will be cool. It will be you could get some single figure mornings, as in you could get some nine or ten degree mornings, but equally you could get some probably mid twenty, early thirties afternoons. You could get some serious swing in the temperature. You can also get a lot of rain, and when it rains, it rains. It seriously rains over there. Um, so that could be a bit of a problem for them. The roads don't take too kindly. There's not great drainage on the roads because then you get probably four or five days of rain a year, but it just tends to be around that time of year. Um, so, yeah, I think it will be almost perfect playing conditions. It will be, you know, balmy evenings. It could be, it will be quite nice. It will probably be more like a sort of spring um, over here, really, hopefully without the rain. So I think it could be, it could be good for, for football. And thankfully they've moved it to, I'll say thankfully for the fans who are traveling, if you were, if you were going there in August, it would be a non-starter. It could be 50, 55 degrees. It's not worth, it's not worth contemplating. So that time of year, very nice conditions. You'll be able to get out and about, walk around, go to the souk, like the market, go to the Katara, which is the nice um, Arabic area that they've developed over there. And it'll be good that, that people have a great time, a really great time. And I, I wish them all, all the best with it. I'm remembering the, the horror story of the 1994 World Cup in the USA when Stephen Staunton, if you want to talk about you and me being pale, he's the palest man in Ireland and ended up playing in Florida in the middle of the afternoon at lunchtime in Mexico against Mexico. And it was a disaster yeah. altogether. Um, David, it sounds to me like you've had a very sort of positive experience. Your family has had a very positive experience there. When you speak to me and when you speak to people in England and in Europe who haven't been to Qatar, do you find that a frustrating thing? Not really. No, so there is that misconception. Um, anyone who's been to the Middle East and spent time out there, that they, they see things slightly differently because they've, they've obviously experienced it. It's not frustrating at all, but it is such a small place that even I struggle to find on the map sometimes. People say, where is it? You have to, you have to look two or three times to find it. It's a tiny little peninsula. It's nice to explain it. And when you're in there and, and you're living and you're living the life there, it doesn't feel, um, it, it feels very, you feel very at home very quickly. It doesn't feel completely alien to you for very long. I know people, a lot of people live in hotels and things, and there's a lot of luxuries which take a bit of getting used to. You know, you get certain levels of treatment which you wouldn't you wouldn't normally get elsewhere. It's not frustrating. I enjoy talking about it. And I think it's a lot more people will experience something, they'll probably go into it with their eyes half half closed and, and come out of it thinking, wow, that is an that's an amazing place, amazing part of the world. Um, and they had a great experience. And you know, hopefully the boys in green will be there as well. I would sincerely doubt that, given how they started. <laughs> David, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. I've always, it's one of those things that anywhere I ever arrive somewhere, I like to get out, I like to walk around the streets and find out. And that's exactly what you've done in Qatar. So it's been absolutely brilliant to have that chance uh, to hear about it, to hear what life is like there. Thanks very much indeed. And I'm sure we'll talk to you again as we get closer to it. Thank you. Anytime, Philip. Thanks very much for your time. And as I say, wish him all the well, all the best with it. Anyone who's, who's got any queries or anything, get in touch with me via Twitter. Um, and yeah, happy to happy to come back on here and, and talk a bit nearer the time. Thanks for your time. Thank you.